the first week of the tennis season in the books in 2017 with major players in action all over the globe. Uh, plenty to talk about, and uh, we'll also discuss the pending tribute to Anna Ivanovich, who retired just before the New Year's. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. Stay tuned. Episode 9. Yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> So, Anand, where do you want to start with? Well, it, we have to start with the women. Uh, there's been a lot of interesting things that have happened lately. Um, I want to start with Anna Ivanovich. Uh, she has retired. Did she? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, she's one of those players who I think of her both of as, as an underachiever and an overachiever. And let me explain what that means. I think when she started early in her career, she had this booming forehand. Everybody thought that she was going to be the next great player in women's tennis. And I, I thought she fulfilled a lot of those expectations early. Uh, she rose to number one in the rankings, uh, made uh, a couple of slam finals and also won the French Open. That is the point where I thought she was overachieving. Uh, she got that success very early in her career at the time when I think the women's store was having a bit of a lull. Um, I don't know, Sakib, if you remember the time, but, the, you know, some of the, I would say, relatively mediocre uh, women's players like uh, Jankovic and uh, Safina, um, they were the ones who were the biggest rivals. And Selena, and, well, Wozniacki came on a little later. And yeah. it wasn't the big names, Serena and um, Justine and on. These, these girls were just missing in that. And there was that window where I think Ivanovic, um, uh, you know, she kind of got in there and won the French Open. Um, so she overachieved, I think, to start with. So even with uh, one major, you think she overachieved? Uh... Well, I think she was lucky to win that major. That's the way I see it. Um, because later on in her career, when you look at it, her game fell apart. Um, she suffered through several crises of confidence. Um, Didn't her serve motion break down? She was serving double faults? Isn't that, isn't that something around that time? It seemed to be a common prevalence among the women's store. Dementieva? Like, Dementieva had it. Uh, Sharapova had a serving uh, yips for a while um, where, uh, during her career. Somehow that seems to be the, 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 the shot that breaks down in women's tennis. Um, but Ivanovich was having some serious problems with herself. Um, and then I think she did really well to claw her way back. And towards the end of her career, again, she had a couple of um, good results. She beat Serena Williams, right? At the Australian Open a couple of years ago? She beat Serena and she made the uh, quarterfinals um, at the US Open. I actually watched a match... Uh, of Anna Ivanovich uh, against Sloane Stevens. And what's interesting for me is I think of Sloane Stevens exactly the same way as I think of Anna Ivanovich. Very overrated to begin with, but now suddenly I feel like she's underachieving. Uh, her games dropped uh, dramatically in the, so, in the last wait a minute. Are you giving so. Ivanovich a tribute or just like <laughs> <laughs> ripping is, her apart? No, this is not a tribute. I mean, this is to say that, you know, she was a unique player in the way she was perceived. Uh, a lot of people gave her either gave her too much credit for who she was or didn't give her enough credit. Fair enough. I think uh, you definitely have a better grasp of the WTA. But uh, even for me, I think Ivanovic, uh, her career is more legit because uh, like other girls, you mentioned Safina, Wozniacki and Yankovic. She has a major win, which I think should separate her from the rest and... I'll, I'll pick one stroke, right? Um, everybody talks about the Ivanovich forehand. I mean, it, it, it is one of the greatest weapons on the women's store. Um, was. The, 
or is was yes and uh, so uh, you know the uh, she hits it flat right and that worked really well on clay where the balls are bouncing high and she could take take it up high and 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 uh, and hit flat but it was also a limited stroke because she didn't have a whole lot of top spin on it and that kind of set her back on uh, on the hard courts uh, so just as like a career you can even think of a forehand the same way it was in some ways it was overrated but then at the same time it was a fantastic stroke uh, so so i i just be, i have mixed thoughts about anavanovic obviously mm. um, but uh, i think the tour is going to miss her okay while we're talking about the women's tennis uh, i have a question for you uh, hanu from uh, nashua new hampshire uh, who's been again a very loyal uh, listener so far to the podcast uh, he sent in a question asking if uh, dominica sibulkova can win on the can can build on the year and championship she won and will she win a major this year your thoughts yeah hanu i think you've uh, picked up a player who i think is the david ferrer of uh, women's tennis uh, punches above her weight i think the advantage sibulkova has over say a guy like david ferrer is the women's tour has the tendency to throw up these surprise winners um uh, every now and then uh, just about a year ago we had two italians uh, playing for the us open final and that was completely unexpected uh, so penetta won that us open uh, so why not i mean sibilkova definitely has the kind of feisty counter punching game that that can win her a slam but if you ask me is sibilkova a slam caliber player and if you consider the, the the entire field in any given match if she's up against an angelique kerber a serena williams um pliskova a pliskova a kvitova who unfortunately is not here um and you know you have to think they they come out as favorites against sibilkova um so i think what what really works for her is the unpredictability of the women's tour yeah right, so it's a noam chomsky kind of an answer so in one word yes or no no i don't see her winning a slam all right hanu uh, you can revisit this when uh, she wins and you can send her the email She's the classic, <laughs> classic, classic overachiever, and I think she's overachieved already. Okay, so since we're still talking WTA, what do you make of uh, Serena Williams and uh, Angelique Kerber, some of the favorites losing this week? No, that... th- this is this is very early, early in the season. But Serena's case is interesting because, as you know, Sakib, she just recently got engaged, and sometimes. events in the private life can creep into you know your drive and motivation on the tour not that serena needs any more motivation and drive i mean she is peerless when it comes to channelizing her focus on the tennis court um but at the same time you have to wonder um at her age and with the rest of the uh, tour playing strong like pliskova um uh, maybe this is the year she starts to fade away but uh, i'll say all this but can you ever count um out serena at wimbledon so she's still your favorite for the title or you going with angie kerber at the australian i i would go with kerber um i think kerber is still the strongest player on the tour um but i specific to serena i think she's going to win wimbledon again okay let's uh, let's attend australia first it's like 5 days from today will be the draw so we can uh, break down the draw in the next podcast yeah the one player sakib i mean we uh, we all should be looking at is uh, karolina pliskova um she's just building on her strength um that, that you know her final appearance in us open was no fluke she's always had the game and actually this week uh, some of the women's players were saying that pliskova's serve was harder to read than even serena williams now that's a high 
It's a big compliment. It's a huge compliment. Yeah. I, I don't think it's true, but um, but I, I think it speaks to how women are feeling about Pliskova's game right now. Similarly, the men also were very busy this week, and uh, all the top men were in action. Uh, your thoughts on uh, Roger Federer's comeback in, uh, in Perth? Yeah, so I, I was very encouraged. Uh, last time we spoke, I, I was doubtful about Federer's ability to come back and play well. Um, and I thought he played uh, two strong matches, one against Zverev uh, and then the other one against Gasquet. Uh, those are the two matches I was really looking at to see where he was. Um, now, Zverev's match was interesting because in my mind, uh, and you know this from an earlier podcast, I'd actually said Zverev would be good enough to make the semifinals of the Australian Open. Yeah, we haven't forgotten that. You called him top 10, so I, that's coming. That's coming, of, and yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to hold myself to it, but Zverev, Sasha, you need to step up, man. I mean, the the game he played against a rusty Federer, I, I just thought he wasn't there. Uh, so I have to put that in context. Even though he won, um, there's a, Sasha won that match in the tiebreak. Um, but I still think that um, Roger played uh, a below-par Sasha in that match. Now, the next match, he played uh, against Gasquet. He played a guy who he has owned, I think, yeah. throughout their careers. And so, um, you know, it was easy pickings. He showed up and he won. He showed some impressive uh, athleticism. I thought he was uh, he was always... Uh, offensive and winning well, um, but um, at the same time, it's it's hard to know. Um, yeah, that's a matchup that's gone south for uh, Richard Gasquet uh, against Roger, and I think my dream draw for Roger would be uh, Ferrer, Feliciano Lopez, and Gasquet. Give them in any order, I think Roger Roger will get it done. So. Or, or, or as you said, uh, the dream draw would be playing six Gasquets. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, Feliciano in the finals. <laughs> and. Uh, Another uh, person uh, who's making his comeback is Rafael Nadal, and uh, he came in short against Milos Raonic in a very close match. How did he do? I mean, uh, I watched some of the highlights. Uh, it was a close match. They also played in Abu Dhabi, I think, uh, in the warm-up tournament. And this time, I think uh, Krychek coming on board. Raonic just started playing like the the way he can, and he was just he just took the racket out of Nadal's hand in the last set after he got the break. I think he had like twenty four aces in the match. Wow! So I don't think Nadal particularly played bad. But, uh, yeah, Raonic uh, took it to another level. He may match. have, but I'm still not bullish on Raonic, as you know. Um, I, I think he showed up for that match, but then he did lose. Um, to Dimitrov? To Dimitrov. But uh, Dimitrov may have turned a corner. I, I know uh, we have been talking about Dimitrov for the last four or five years, and this is the first year. Uh, we are not putting any stock into him, and guess what? He comes out, wins the first 250. So here's the thing, Sakib. I mean, Raonic improved his game, and Dimitrov turned a corner. And you saw who won. I mean, do you really hmm. see Raonic come uh, actually be a threat? Look, it's all about matchups as well, right? So, uh, Grigor Dimitrov has been the forgotten child in this conversation for the last generation. Uh, Milos Raonic and Nishikori have clearly outperformed him in the last two years. They have been ranked higher consistently. They have been winning tournaments and going deep in bigger events. So, I think it's a good win for Grigor. And I can still say it's a good week for Milos because... Anytime with his, uh, say, limited movement, I don't know what exactly is a nice word to say, but when he's playing against the likes of Djokovic, Nadal, or Federer, or Murray, they will make his movement pay. They'll find they'll find ways to make him exposed on the run. So I think it's a good win. Now, Grigor was in the finals of the same tournament last year as well, right? No, last year, uh, Raonic uh, beat Federer here in Brisbane. Okay. 
And then uh, going back to Dimitrov, he had a fantastic win, uh, backed it up against Kei Nishikori, against whom he has a losing record. They played in, that I think, was a strong win. Yeah, they played in Toronto. The match was very similar, but this time I think the key points were won by Dimitrov, who protected his serve slightly better than Nishikori. And I think that's, that's a major win with uh, all the coaching changes and all the turmoil he's had going back to the Diego Schwartzman match in uh, Istanbul last year. So. I mean, you have to feel for uh, Gregor. I mean, all those early uh, reports of him being the next Federer, I think I, that added a lot of pressure to him. And finally... Yeah, but he signed up for that, right? You know, he's not like a club player. So when you pretty much model your game around someone, you will have those comparisons. And Peter Lundgren announced him when he was a teenager that he's even better, uh, more talented than Roger. So that's all publicity, and I've seen Grigor at the Open few times. He doesn't move as well as Fed, even though he has a shots like Roger. But oh, his court positioning, yeah. his shot selection. Um, I think there's a lot. <laughs> but but definitely, I think uh, Danny V has put on a lot of work, and I think you can see when he gave up the chance of coaching uh, Juan Martin Del Potro, and he stuck with Dimitrov. So maybe this is uh, the time for Grigor Dimitrov fans to be excited. Uh, he has edged Roger Federer in the rankings, and I think he would be seated 15 or 16 for the Open. Uh, can he cause any upset? Uh, I, I I think he can. Um, uh, now, again, what kind of an upset? Can he beat Andy Murray or Djokovic? I don't think so. Uh, yeah, Vavrinka, Raonic, and one of those guys. I mean, the top four. Um, so, I, I think Raonic definitely has shown the game to beat Raonic. Uh, and um, Raonic himself, I know, will come back tougher the next time they play. Um, he's. I think Raonic is is a very cerebral player. They, people don't give him the credit that he does adapt. Oh, you game. don't. I, I've been giving him credit, and you. <laughs> I just don't give him the world. Yeah. I mean, the world beating credit, but I I do give him credit against players. Look, uh, he, he he has weapons. I mean, if he gets hard, he can take the racket out of anyone's hand. Uh, it's not a pretty sight. We don't root for that kind of tennis, um, but uh, he, I mean, you have to feel for Raonic as well. Last two years, he built some major. Uh, success with coaches and both those coaches left him. One went for Roger Federer and now Moya has joined Rafael Nadal. So, if Krychek gets him to another final, is it fair to say Djokovic will be coached by Krychek next year? Uh, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I, I feel bad for Raonic in the way I felt bad for, say, Todd Martin or someone like that. Uh, Where did Todd Martin <laughs> come from? <laughs> he's, he's just the kind of boring player who has seems to have the big weapons, but you don't want to root root for him. Uh, okay, I mean, Todd's a great guy, and you know, I don't think he'll ever <laughs> listen to our podcast, but come on, Raonich is not as boring as Todd. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about the big match in Doha. Uh, Sir Andy Murray losing to Djokovic. Sakib, you watched yeah, that it's, match? It's bizarre. The world number one lost to world number two. It's still weird uh, calling Novak Djokovic. Or oh, the second best player lost yeah, to the best player. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're a Djokovic fan, I think this, this was a pretty good. Uh, sign that he is on his way back. He definitely is not at his best yet offensively, but he really cleaned up his errors. I don't know if you followed uh, his semifinal against Fernando Verdasco. Uh, Djokovic had no business winning that match, but then, you know, uh, that's a good combination. Fernando doesn't want to win. Djokovic doesn't want to lose. So that just <laughs> produced that kind of matches. But yeah, going back to the final yesterday, I think Novak cleaned up his game really well. He was still not pulling the trigger, but because in the second set, when he had match points, he played a couple of passive points and then Murray turned that around and won four games in a row. Let, uh, uh, tell me from Murray's perspective, um, what, what, is, what was he doing? Uh, was, he, was he playing well? He was in the first five games, I noticed he, the positioning mattered in this match and Murray was playing very close to the baseline. He was dictating, but Novak was still holding his own. 
And then uh, I think there was Murray got broken with a double fall game, and then Djokovic's serve became stronger. And there was a point when Djokovic won, I think, 15 points in a row on his serve. He defended his second serve extremely well, won 72%. That was a big difference. So this is a match that last year we were craving for in the fall when Andy Murray is playing close to his prime and Novak was not. They both were on and off in this match, I think, and they both didn't play their best together, but it was still a great match. Murray played better when he was behind, and Novak played very clinical. His offense, however, still could improve, which will, again, be scary grounds. If so I guess the big question is, does this give Novak the edge, right? Um, we know he lost a little bit of edge towards the end of the year, but does he regain it? He's the defending champion, after all. He didn't need an edge going into a place where he has won so many uh, major events in Melbourne. But definitely beating Murray after his uh, subpar performance in Verdasco, Novak should be feeling really well. And uh, he has a new coach now, assistant coach, Dusan Vemic, a former uh, doubles player from Serbia, has joined uh, Team Djokovic while Becker was actively tweeting. He out-tweeted me in the last... Ten minutes, <laughs> and I'm—I can get pretty desperate. Maybe, with these maybe that's his new form of coaching. Uh, maybe that's his form of saying, "Hey, you know, if you lose, I'm still a phone call away." Again, not a rag on Becker. I think that just shows how Becker probably misses being in Djokovic's corner. I, uh, and and so the what is interesting for me is uh, Sakib now when they go into the Australian Open, um, Andy Murray actually lost early at the U.S. Open, so he, his last Slam result hasn't been that strong. Now, he's going to come in against um, Djokovic. And question is now, is he going to see a different Djokovic than he saw towards the end of last year? Yeah, Yes and no. You know what? Uh, Murray, I think, is a very modest, I think, player because he knows the other three guys have achieved far more. I mean, he, has said, he hasn't said this to me personally, but that's my take on Murray. So even though Djokovic kind of went away, he knew what Djokovic has accomplished and what Djokovic means in their head-to-head. He knows Novak is a... Uh, I think he knows Novak is a superior player. So, uh, But at the same time, losing to him just before the Australian Open, I, I don't think it's going to affect Murray that much, but it's an advantage that Djoko, Djokovic needed. I see this as huge. I mean, clearly I've, I've always been tooting Novak's horn here. And uh, in this case, this is huge because people were doubting Novak's mental, uh, whether he was really in it, right? And this tells me that he is. And if, if he's motivated to win this tournament and maybe prove a point to everyone, and he has beaten Andy in the last match they've played, I just don't see Andy coming and winning the next match. Yeah, this was a very physical affair. Just like any Djokovic-Murray encounter, it was five minutes shy of three hours. And these guys were testing each other and Murray was playing world-class defense. Uh, Djokovic was just, uh, I think he was dictating play. He was in the center of the points and he was making Andy Murray run side to side. And Murray played well when he was behind and then had some untimely double faults. But uh, kudos to Novak for getting this done. Another interesting thing happened in yesterday's match. Uh, Djokovic uh, threw the ball. Uh, he bounced the ball, in, I think, after he lost a game and went into the crowd. And a lot of people are saying that should be uh, disqualification, even though he was not aiming at anyone. I think it's harsh. I mean, the, he Joker plays with a lot of passion, and I know he's had a couple of near misses in the past. No, no, but Anand, let's not bring the passion here. Everybody's playing for, with passion. I mean, you think Tommy Robredo doesn't have passion? Or uh, I think question uh, is, Nick, did he intend to hit? But Nick Kyrgios tweeted, right? He said if he had done this, he would have been banned for like say twenty-five tournaments or so. So because Nick Kyrgios most likely would have meant it. When yeah, he did. but uh, establishment has to distinguish. You can't uh, bring in the rules uh, depending on who's. Uh, 
at, at stake because remember again we have to go back to 94 when our favorite Boris Becker took a toilet break and then he took coaching against Javier Fran a lot of people don't know that and that time we were both in Becker's corner and those were rules to be dismissed from the tournament McEnroe who was in the booth who was recently retired said Becker should have been thrown out of the tournament it's so, known tennis establishment so, so let, me say, let me say it differently maybe then um, I, I, I don't think that um, what he did was wrong enough for him to be disqualified from the match. Now, the rule says that he could be if he, if he did it. And if a fair application of the rule, he probably should have been disqualified. But I think the rule itself is harsh. Um, the context has to be brought into this. Did he mean to you know, hurt someone when he hit the ball that hard? And, and I think the rule has to be applied putting that into context. And that's just the way I see it. I mean, if you really do go after someone, I mean, you're hurt and you're, you're behaving in a way, I think, that, that brings a game into question. Yeah, but then, again, uh, Nalbandian didn't mean to hurt the linesman. He s- smashed his racket at the, I think, the chair this person was sitting. And then the person obviously got injured. And uh, Nalbandian had to pay. Or Tim Henman, when he threw the ball in 95 at a ball girl without looking, he was tossed out. And and that's my point is if they if they were, they were and my point is the rule ha- is a bit harsh in that sense. No, I, I mean, still, it, I still think tennis sides with the stars, and I'm not saying Novak. If this could have been Roger, could have been Pete, anyone. I think the occasion is too big. It's the final. Fine, Novak has thrown the ball in the stands before. This was probably not as intentional, but still it. it but hit, but, you know, but think of it as a fan. You would be much worse off if you started disqualifying. Yeah, but then we should have rules. I mean, fine. No, have rules that put things in proper context. No, no, no. I think the, you, you're missing <laughs> the point here. Rules should apply same if it's Kyrgios, Alejandro Faya, or absolutely Wallace agree. Becker. Absolutely mean, agree. Absolutely agree. And uh, so I, I mean, where I'm really saying is, let's let's find a way to work the rule in a way that it it not saying that it should favor top players, but it puts their actions in the right context. Do they mean what yeah, they but do? And the same he's for a top, He's a top player. You should know. He shouldn't be doing it, right? Same for Kyrgios. I'm, I'm not saying that Kyrgios, um, you know, uh, should be punished. I'm saying that they maybe they're being too harsh on Kyrgios as well um, on certain things. Uh, but Kyrgios, most of his punishments happen after the match. I mean, it's for things he says, uh, things he does to other players. No, he's had his fair share during the match. The second game, I think, at US Open, first round, he had some sort of a penalty. So, yeah, he's uh, Kyrgios is an all-rounder. He does get attention. A lot of time it's warranted and sometimes, you know, they scapegoat him because of who he is. What I've found is, I mean, there's a lot of players, I mean, Djokovic for the for these kinds of offenses, Rafa for taking time, right? Taking he, time is different. I mean, that's not... My, my point is they're all rules, right? They're all different rules being applied, I, I think, differently to uh, the top players versus maybe, uh, you know, the, the lesser players. And, and to your point, I agree, they need to be consistent, but they also need to take into account the match context and what the player intended. Yeah, but tennis establishment to me, again, uh, uh, not a nice segue, but uh, tennis establishment is kind of favoring the top players. Uh, I was at Roland Garros and uh, we were walking behind Feliciano Lopez uh, and he went ballistic at this uh, Roland Garros official who didn't know that it's hard to believe that Lopez is a top player. She said, yeah, you have a practice code for doubles players and Lopez just lost it. He said, why can't he? He's a singles player as well. He needed a full court to practice. And then Ernest Gulbis two days later comes out on an interview saying he's tasting life in a very different view after he's been out of the top 100 and there are no practice courts. His family didn't even get seating on court 18. And when same morning I saw Burdick practicing alone 
you know, against a top player for hour and a half is Suzanne Longland. So these things does ha- do happen. And Paul Anacon, of all people, when this topic was hot last year during French Open, he defended. He said Roger and Novak have earned that. But I don't think it's democratic at this all. Is, this is true. I mean, uh, Saqib, you and I watched uh, a doubles match, Sanya Mirza and Martina Hingis. Uh, oh, that was a sh- that was such a shame. And so what <laughs> happened there was the, uh, Hingis and Mirza won easily. And they shook hands with their opponents, a couple of young American players. And as soon as the match is over, um, Sanya motions to the crowd saying, you guys have to wait for the autograph. And they immediately go back on the court. And, and their opponents haven't even finished walking off the court. Sanya and Hingis are on opposite sides hitting against each other, which I think was clearly disrespectful. They, they Agreed, 100%. They might have asked the other girls, but still it's disrespectful because they have to leave together. But the other thing, Sakip, to your point, is this was one of the courts where all the guys, the security guards, I, I actually asked one of the security guards what was going on and he just shrugged and he said, I have no idea this was coming, that these guys are actually going to be hitting. These girls were going to be hitting. And so, um, to, to your point, if they are stars, they get the star treatment. I'm not surprised. Uh, this is true of every no, this sport. Is, this is not even star treatment. This, I think uh, they just are muscling their star power. They ask the other girls if they want to you know, stick around for a few more minutes. But the establishment, you know, like Feliciano Lopez or Ernest Gulbis should not be complaining that they don't have enough court time when Burdick is like, you know, or Federer and Djokovic, they're getting like hours. This is just not democratic because once you're in the slam, you're, everybody should get fair enough chance to win. God knows that the lower rank guys are going through the taxi, you know, the, the cabs, the train station, you know, like they, they have their hands full just to get to the venue. All these venues like uh, Flushing Meadows or Roland Garros, these are not easy places to get if you're staying I, I think, in the city. I, I think you are hitting upon a core point of, I, I think, the, the, the basis of the competition itself is uneven. No, I think it's, it's related. The Becker example from Wimbledon, even though that time, you know, I would have cried had Becker been thrown out in 94, but he did break the rule. He went for a toilet break. And a lot of people don't know that you can go Google that stuff and it's probably still available. And Javier Frana was waiting and he was attended medically. But to your point, I mean, do all the 128 players in the draw get the exact same opportunities to play on the practice courts? They should. I mean, I don't know if they do. Probably they do at US Open because it's a bigger venue. French Open has had its challenges because uh, they're trying to build more courts, which is, which is fair. But at the same time, a guy like Lopez should not be told that, you know, he's getting a doubles court uh for like four players to practice when, and he, he, he really went nuts after that moment. And we were just, we, we were witness. We were standing behind one girl was trying to get an autograph and just Lopez was so mad. He did not stop for anyone. I mean, so the only, I mean, this is not to defend your point. Um, I mean, an opposite point, but this is commonplace in every sport. Um, whether it's, you know, giving them preferential calls. But then they should be in the rules. Uh, Djokovic and Federer will get preferential treatment because they bring in more business. And, <laughs> and Gulbis, when you're back, rank 20, we'll get you a court. And, you know, like, I'm, and Nick, you will be thrown out if you throw the ball, but Andy won't be thrown out. So Yeah, no, I, I think definitely you, you're bringing up some really good points. I mean, if you're chair umpires and uh, tournament organizers listening to the stuff, I mean, you really need to think about being fair. Um, I... I I think this is a gladiatorial sport and you're going one-on-one uh, with hopefully people coming in with equal tools and equal resources. No, again, I mean, remember, again, most people won't. Alexander Volkov, who coached Marat Safin back in the day, he beat Stefan Edberg uh, in US Open. And if I'm correctly remembering, the story was this guy was stuck in New York traffic. He was taking public conveyance just to get to Flushing Meadows. 
the women's match kind of got extended and he barely got in time and then he beat Edberg who was the reigning Wimbledon champion so that's Ed, that's, that's I mean that's, Edberg and Becker they're not having a hard time getting to the location and look it's already not level it's these not guys level are staying, staying in motel 6 but or something but the least <laughs> these guys can do is make make and I I am buying into your All argument right, fine, is agree, make yeah, yeah you, you you convinced me I I think anyone who's listening I think will agree Sakib is making some right, really this, good this points this is the first everybody listening it's like uh, Anand and I am agreeing, so this is this is good news. <laughs> so let's, uh, with the Open just one week away, let's yeah. uh, talk about maybe each of us pick two players um, who you think will have an impact uh, in in the Open, and let's let's try and pick players who are not in the top ten. Uh, who who are you looking at outside the top ten? Uh, this week in Doha, uh, Fernando Verdasco also has a new coach on his team. Uh, the coaching carousel continues with uh, Emilio Sanchez coming back to the game. And uh, oh, wow. results were good uh, because when Verdasco took out Karlovic in straight sets, which is by no means an easy out on these courts. So he's one guy. If uh, he's put in the work and uh, the forehand is working, he needs a couple of and matches. Th- this can... is his best slam historically. Yeah, that doesn't say much though. I mean, he just <laughs> made one semis. But yeah, he's one guy. And then uh, I'll be keenly following... Uh, again, Nick Kyrgios, he's barely out of top 10. Uh, I think uh, if he's if he got, he, if he's got a decent draw, he will definitely be in the second week. And uh, yeah, I'll be following these two guys. Yeah, and on my side, I'm going to bring up two women. Uh, so one is Naomi Osaka. Um, so a few years ago, she became she went viral on YouTube because she, she clocked this forehand at more than 100 miles an hour. And uh, so that was when she was 15. And now she's grown. She's she's a tall girl for someone with Japanese origin, and uh, she's got some big ground strokes. People think she's going to be uh, a future world number one, even. Um, so I'm going to see how I'm. I'm keen to see how she's going to do. Um, she started off the year strong, but she actually was hurt and had to pull out uh, last week. Um, but she also finished the last year strong in Tokyo, where um, she made the final. Uh, and but lost to Wozniacki. So I'm looking out for uh, Osaka. The other player is another young player is Anna Konyu, uh, who made the fourth round of the U.S. Open. That was, I think, her um, breakthrough tournament. Um, again, has had strong results, very solid all-round game, um, a slightly more powerful version of uh, Martina Hingis, even uh, from a court positioning standpoint. Um, not comparing her to Hingis, yeah, no, that's fair but, enough, yeah. but she's young and precautious, uh, a junior slam winner, a junior world number one. Um, I think she's also destined for big things, and I think she's going to come into her own again. Hard court is her favorite surface, so I, I think she, she she's going to be in the mix. Are you expecting like a second week from any of them? Or I think for Osaka, it'll all come down to is she fit? Um, really, I... I think she can break through here. I, I rate her higher than Madison Keys, who's been, you know, in the mix for a while, and people always think she's she's going to break through and win a slam. Osaka, I think, has more game, um, and she's got a better backhand for sure. And uh, so she she is definitely the one to watch out for. Konyo, I think, having won a junior slam, um, I see that potential where where yeah. she's going to come come through in the on the main women's tour. Fair enough. And I would like to pat my, myself on the back because my pick, uh, Daniel Medvedev. Of course, I was. Uh, yeah, I, I saw reached, that. reached the Chennai <laughs> final. So this guy was a 
you know, playing Roberto Batista Agut in the finals. Uh, I think he should be ranked uh, 70 come uh, rankings tomorrow. Had a couple of solid wins, I yeah. thought. He's a part of the Russian generation, you know. The, the new big four from Russia with Hashinov, Rublev, uh, uh, Medvedev and uh, uh, Bublik. Yeah, so Bublik and uh, Rublev will be going for Australian qualifying while I think Hashinov is playing in Auckland. So yeah, there's a bit of resurgence. I, I was back. watching the young juniors at the Chennai Open. Uh, it was very disappointing to see Chorich lose again uh, early, this he, time he in the first round. Your man. Uh, uh, yeah, he Chang, did. Right? He lost to Chang. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you think about Chorich's career, where we thought he was heading, he's had a sophomore slump and now I think it's continuing. I mean, uh, I, I'm just not seeing him even break through into the top 30 right now. I think he had an okay fall, right? He kind of resurrected some of the promise. Uh, but this is first week. Uh, so I'm I'm gonna hold. So I watched that match on YouTube again. Just don't see those new any new weapons. Nothing added. He still seems to have a limited swing on his backhand. Uh, Chung, on the other hand, I thought looked really solid. Um, he actually is coming off a very strong challenger tour. Uh, he made a couple of finals and he won a couple of challengers as well. Um, I think he's priming up nicely. I yeah, think he's definitely a next-gen guy who should be in the mix. Uh. Definitely is. I mean, again, no big tools, but he's quick and, uh, and I think his serve is pretty decent. So, as we conclude this po- podcast, anything no, else? Yeah, I mean, before we wrap up, Sakib, one topic that's been eating away... And I'm no Joker fan, as you know. I'm I'm firmly in the Roger Federer camp. I just feel he's not been given enough credit for what he achieved um, over the last three years. All the way through the French Open, winning four slams in a row. I think it's the single greatest achievement in, in the Open era. And nobody's calling it that. Nobody's giving him that kind of credit, saying... And if you remember, when when he won the French Open, my question to everyone was, regardless of how many slams he wins, does this make him the greatest player in history? Uh, I mean, does it really put him above Roger and um, Bjorn Borg and, you know, most of the greats that, that we've seen? Yeah, that, that's an ongoing discussion, right? We can uh, we can attend to that. But definitely I agree that Djokovic uh, has been short-changed, uh, because what he achieved is uh, singularly the greatest uh, feat in the Open era. He held all four since labor. He played some very dominant tennis, and him completing a career slam somehow got a little more attention, and everybody forgot that he was holding all four. Or people didn't forget, but they didn't just mention it enough. If Nadal or Federer would have done it, I'm pretty sure this would have been a bigger deal. Yeah, absolutely. When, when you win all four in a row, you're world number one. I mean, you can give the guy a little bit of uh, room for losing a bit of motivation at that point. Um, but for me, this is the greatest thing I've seen in 20 or 30 years. In spite of the years, I've, I've, I've watched Federer and, uh, you know, McEnroe early when he dominated in 84 when I was a kid. Um, but there, was, there hasn't been a year like Djokovic on the men's tour. This episode, just would like to thank anyone and everyone who's been listening and supporting our uh, podcast so far. And even uh, on Twitter, everybody who's been uh, retweeting this, because I still have a very minimum audience. And thanks uh, to everyone who's retweeted this. Uh, can't appreciate uh, the following. And yeah, Australian Open is uh, a week away. And uh, we should be doing one more uh, podcast very soon. And hopefully that'll be after the draw. Thanks for listening. Bye now. Thanks, guys. And girls. <laughs>